0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Donald Meisel, minister here and moderator of these forums. Voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. That's what we are about in presenting these forums free and open to the public seven or eight times a year at noon for an hour, ordinarily on a Thursday, today on a Tuesday. We are meeting on Tuesday because last Thursday when we were to have gathered, our speaker, Thomas L. Friedman, chief diplomatic correspondent for the New York Times, was in the Middle East with Secretary of State Baker on his most recent mission there. Thomas Friedman is a native of Minneapolis. Many of his family and personal friends are here today. In fact, his mother is in the audience today. Let's give credit where credit is due. (laughs) She had a great deal to do with his accepting the invitation to speak today at Westminster. Mr. Friedman is a 1975 graduate of Brandeis University and received his Master of Philosophy from St. Andrews College, Oxford, England in 1978. At Oxford, he majored in Middle Eastern Studies. Within the year of graduation, he was working for the New York Times in Israel. His unvarnished reporting on events earned him a Pulitzer Prize. By 1982, he was bureau chief for the Times in Lebanon. Soon after his arrival there, Israel invaded Lebanon, and he found himself in the position of being the only full-time American Jewish reporter in West Beirut. It was a truly unique position to be in. When Israel withdrew from Beirut, Mr. Friedman returned to reporting from Jerusalem, winning another Pulitzer in 1988. After a year's leave of absence in the late eighties to finish his book from Beirut to Jerusalem, Friedman took up his present position with the times in Washington. Many of us have read from Beirut to Jerusalem and gained insights we never had into the mysterious world which is the Middle East. Many of us heard Mr. Friedman on McNeil Lair and Washington Week in Review and other programs especially during the Persian War crisis. His was the voice needing to be heard. Mr. Friedman's topic, the Middle East today. Sir, having just returned, tell us what's old and what's new about the Middle East today. Mr. Friedman.
1: Welcome. thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Thank you. Thank you, Don, and thank you to the Town Hall Forum. It's great to be here. I'm sorry for the delay of a few days. When I called up uh, Wenda Moore, the coordinator of this program, and told her we had to reschedule, she said, oh, no, what are we going to do? How will, how will we let people know? I said, just call my mother. She'll tell everybody. <laughs> it's the big deal. But I was in Jerusalem last week, and I, I really uh, have to say what a, what a privilege it was to, to be in that great city, staying at the King David Hotel, overlooking the old city of Jerusalem, the home of the three great monotheistic religions, to wake up in the morning with the sun shining there the first day we were there, and to go down to the lobby of the King David Hotel, and to find out that the North Stars were in the playoffs of the Stanley (laughs) Cup finals. I can't tell you what a thrill that was. Now to a more serious subject, the Middle East today. What I'm gonna try to do in the next half hour is to uh, give you a few rules, a few rules that I use for understanding Uh, the Middle East today, where we are, particularly understanding the Persian Gulf War and its aftermath. And uh, I think there are seven or eight rules which I'll be giving you. Somebody here can keep track and remind me what one I'm on. My first rule is that when an Iraqi dictator hints that he's going to invade his neighbor, it's best to take him seriously. (laughs) Now, why was it that Saddam Hussein was able to virtually sky write, virtually telegraph, almost his every move, at least in the endgame, before his invasion of Kuwait. And so many of, of our best analysts and so many people in the Middle East missed his intentions. What is it that we're, we're missing here? And one of the things that I've always argued is that what Westerners so often miss when they come at the Middle East are what I call the three layers, the three dimensions of Middle East politics. We often have a very one-dimensional view. Now, those three dimensions are what I call tribalism, authoritarianism, and presidential politics. The bottom layer, the tribal layer of Middle East politics comes right out of the desert tradition. And you know, in the desert, when you're out in the desert with your tribe, There's no 911 you call when you're in trouble. The only thing that protects you in the desert from your enemies is your reputation for going all the way. No one hurts me unharmed. Now Saddam Hussein is a tribal chief. He comes from a regional tribe, the tribe of Tikrit. The Tikritis, that's his hometown. And he has surrounded himself at the top with loyal Tikritis, Hafez al-Assad. The president of Syria comes from the Alawite tribe. And when Hafez al-Assad faced a rebellion from the fundamentalist Sunni Muslims in Syria, he didn't just put down the rebellion in the town of Hama, he leveled the whole town. He put down the rebellion in a way that sent a message to all the other tribes in Syria, this is what happens to anyone who challenges me. When Saddam Hussein faced a rebellion from the Kurds, he didn't just put down the rebellion, he literally drove every Kurd he could out of Iraq, and it sent a message to everyone else in Iraq. This is what happens to anyone who challenges me. So that first substrata there, which we always have to keep in mind, is what I call the tribal dimension. overlaid on that, precisely because you had a history of tribes in this part of the world that could never really get together and form nation states, but you always had to have outside powers come in and impose their authority by the sword, you have this authoritarian dimension. And in authoritarian politics, there's no no bill of rights. You, You live and die by the sword. The fundamental law of the land is rule or die. One man triumphs, the others weep. You don't retire gracefully in Iraqi politics. There's no Santa Barbara on the Euphrates. <laughs> okay? You're either in power or you're dead, and no one understands that better than a, ha- than a Saddam Hussein or a Hafez al-Assad. The joke that the Lebanese always used to tell about Hafez al-Assad is that there was an election in Syria one year and Hafez al-Assad won 99.7% of the vote. And his aide came to him and said, Mr. President, you won 99.7% of the vote. It means only three-tenths of one percent of the Syrian people didn't vote for you. What more could you ask for? He said, their names. (laughs) So that's the authoritarian layer. Now, overlaid on those two layers, almost like a glaze on a cake, is what I call sort of the modern presidential Western model with parliaments and constitutions delivered by the British and the French at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. Iraq has a parliament, Iraq has a cabinet, Iraq I think even has a constitution. But the problem is so many Westerners come and examine the society and only deal with that third layer. And they only see that third layer. Oh, you have a president? That's terrific. We have George Washington. You have Saddam Hussein. That's wonderful. <laughs> oh, it's great. We're all, we're all the same here. And this is where we so often get misled, because a Saddam Hussein or a Hafez al-Assad, they are playing three-dimensional chess all the time. They know when to be the tribal chieftain and level Hama, or the Kurdish territories flat, and when to be the modernizing presidents and invite Willy Brandt to come in and discuss the hostage crisis and say, we must find a way out of this consistent with the UN charter. So they are playing three-dimensional chess all the time. And all too often, we just play checkers with them one one one-dimensional move at a time. And when you do that, you're always going to lose. Now my second rule is not so much a rule, but an observation really, it's how is it? How is it that five white guys in pinstripe suits and a black general from Jamaica named Colin Powell got this war right in a way that so many of the Middle East experts got it wrong? None of these guys really came out of any sort of Middle East studies background. Well, they got, it wrong. they got it right, in many ways, by ignoring the experts and by virtue of the fact that they came out of an East-West power politics vacuum, background. And in the East-West power politics model, nobody comes to you and says, oh, you win by losing. You win by losing. Remember all the experts who told us Saddam just wins by losing? You never win by losing. Saddam Hussein, everyone told us, was going to be Saladin because all he had to do was take a few American casualties and the Arab world would hail him. But Saladin got to be Saladin not because he lost, but because he won. And George Bush and his aides applied a pure power politics model to this, the same as they would have in Eastern Europe and on the Soviet front. And they said the course of battle will define everything Don't tell me, you win by losing. But we also have to keep in mind that they were very lucky. Very lucky. Very lucky to have had Saddam Hussein as an enemy. Because it is rare, it is rare in history that you find an enemy who manages to alienate everyone from the Sierra Club to Wall Street. That Saddam Hussein, by his egregious behavior from unleashing an oil spill to raping Kuwait, invested this story with a moral clarity that it never would have had with almost any other leader. And he, by his behavior, transformed this story from one about protecting a wealthy Kuwaiti ruling family and returning them to power, And you can see in the last few days how dangerous it would have been for George Bush had that been the story. He transformed it from that story to one about defeating an evil dictator with weapons of mass destruction who refused to compromise at every single turn. A lot of people say to me, diplomacy failed here. I say, diplomacy didn't fail. I was on every trip with Baker. I covered every inch of the diplomacy on this story. And I can assure you, at every turn, Baker and Bush were waiting for Saddam to say, OK, I'll take half a loaf. And he never did. And someone like that is not going to come along every crisis. So we should keep that in mind as we hail the experts in this one as well. Now, my third rule um, is that the Middle East experts who predicted that the Arab street would rise up in revolt if American soldiers fought an Arab Muslim army in the Gulf. Those who predicted that the Arab street would rise up were 100% right. They just got the wrong street. It wasn't Beirut, and it wasn't Cairo, it wasn't even Amman. It turned out to be Baghdad, and Basra, and Mosul, and Kirkuk. It was the Iraqi street that rose up in the end. Now why was that? What did we miss here? How could people have made such an egregiously wrong prediction? I think they missed several things. The first thing they missed was the real ambivalence of the Arab world about this war and about Saddam Hussein. The press coverage of this war was highly skewed by the fact that so many journalists and networks were in Amman, where you had so many Palestinians who for their own particular and unique historical reasons were supporting Saddam Hussein. Whereas in Cairo, the great metropolis of the Arab world, the heart and soul of the region, there was in fact ambivalence. And I would say that ambivalence really characterized Arab politics in general. To say that we've interviewed the people of Amman, Jordan, so we know how the Arab world feels is like saying I've spoken to the people of Duluth, I know how America feels. No offense to the people of Duluth. I always forget that's a line I use out of town, but it's... Uh, <laughs> that's right. Helena, Montana. and they know. So what was this ambivalence of the Arab world? The experts said, or so many people said, Saddam said, Saddam himself said, I am a Muslim fundamentalist, here to restore the glories of Islam. And we were told that that message resonated. And he said, I'm Robin Hood, here to steal from the Arab rich to give to the poor. And we were told that that message resonated. But the Arab street was so much smarter. The Arabs are so much smarter than the Arabists. They knew that Saddam was a Muslim fundamentalist about as much as Madonna is a Christian fundamentalist. (laughs) They knew that Saddam was Robin Hood about as much as Michael Milken was Robin Hood. They saw through him like a pane glass window. But they were ambivalent. They were ambivalent in the sense that every Iraqi scud that landed on Israel, little, little light in the heart of every Arab. I have no illusions about that. And every day that Saddam defied the West, a little, little light in the heart of every Arab. But at the same time, every Arab, I would argue, understood who Saddam Hussein was and that Saddam Hussein was a thief and a bandit. And that Khomeini welded his followers to him with real reverence and devotion. And Nasser welded his followers to him with real love and respect. But Saddam, Saddam welded his followers to him with one thing and one thing only, and that was fear. And at the end of the day, fear just doesn't make it alone. My my fourth rule is that President Bush will, will never regret having sent American troops back to Iraq to protect the Kurds in Kurdistan, because how he handles and how he is seen to handle the aftermath of the Gulf War will be decisive in ultimately determining the moral quality and basis of this war. Now, what do I mean by that? Before the war started, the president, in many ways, had it easy. He could mobilize, in trying to build support for this operation, the two most basic principles of American foreign policy. One is our support, our Wilsonian support for the right of peoples to national self-determination. And here the Kuwaiti people had had their right of national self-determination violently stripped away by the Iraqis as they were annexed and made the 19th province. The other principle is our support for the sanctity of borders of nation-states, no matter what goes on inside those borders. Okay, they don't let women drive in Saudi Arabia. Doesn't matter. Okay, so the Al-Sabah family in Kuwait was elected in 1756. Doesn't matter, okay? (laughs) The important thing are the sanctity of borders because if we allow states to simply trample on the borders of other states, there will be no international order. There will be only chaos. So the president could mobilize those two basic and fundamental arguments in garnering support for this operation. But what he discovered after the war was that while before the war, these two principles were perfectly in parallel, after the war, they were suddenly in contradiction. And he had to choose one or the other. What happened after the war The Kurds rebelled. The Kurds are a nation, a people demanding the same right of national self-determination as the Kuwaitis. Do we support them, or do we say we support the sanctity of the borders of Iraq, no matter who is in charge inside Iraq, no matter how evil the regime there? And the president faced a fundamental choice. Which principle does he hold most dear? and because, ultimately, the one he chooses would be the legacy of this war. And I would argue that he chose rightly, both for America and for his own place in history, by coming to the support of the Kurds in this way, and by upholding and insisting that the principle of national self-determination was at least as important, if not more, than the principle of the sanctity of borders. My uh, fourth rule, fifth rule? Five, great. My fifth rule is that if you want to know how long the international coalition that we assembled in this war against Iraq, if you want to know how long it's going to hold together, and whether it will be usable for other things after this war, then watch the Soviet Union. The Soviets were the keystone from the very beginning of this coalition. No Soviets, no Gorbachev and Shevardnadze, no coalition. Imagine if you would for a moment, what it would have been like, how things would have evolved if this Iraqi invasion had happened 10 years ago. I'll tell you what would have happened. The Kuwaitis and the United States would have teamed up to demand an emergency meeting of the United Nations Security Council and the Soviets would have dragged their feet for three days while their Iraqi allies fully digested Kuwait. Three days later the Security Council would have met. We would have tabled a resolution calling for the immediate and unconditional withdrawal of Iraqi forces from Kuwait and the Soviets would have threatened to veto it and we would have had to settle for a resolution calling on all sides to resolve their differences peacefully. We would have rushed troops to the region and the hotline would have rung in the Oval Office and a voice would have said in Russian, ah, 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 not so fast. And by the way, comrade, we're moving troops too. We would have come to the Arabs and the Europeans and said, you've got to line up with us against this aggression. And they would have told us, love to be with you. Love to be with you. <laughs> but if you and the Soviets can't even get together, you don't expect us to choose, do you? You and the Soviets get together and give us a call. Otherwise, if you don't mind, we're going to take a powder on this one. It is a measure. It is a measure of what a new world we live in that that scenario did not unfold. But the question now is how long can these two superpowers remain in sync? And we've already seen a lot of tension. I can tell you as one who covers this between the two since it hasn't exploded entirely out of the open but a lot of it is driven by the domestic internal changes inside the Soviet Union, too, in particular. As the Soviet Union has disintegrated more and more internally, Gorbachev has had to rely on the traditional forces of order, the army and the KGB, for more and more support. And these groups, these institutions, are deeply ambivalent about the American position, the strategic position, at the southern sort of underbelly of the Soviet Union, their proximity to all of these tremendous mineral resources. And they are really the ones responsible for pressing Gorbachev to make the 11th hour bid that he made to spare Iraq the air war and then the ground war. And at the same time, the other very important factor is the loss of Shevardnadze and his retirement. I know he's going to be here tomorrow. Shevardnadze, of all the people I've had the privilege to cover in international affairs, is easily one of the most remarkable. He is, I would argue, the real Gorbachev in many ways, and the man who was really responsible at key moments for putting the Soviet Union where it was on the Gulf War. He has been replaced by a very nice but a very gray and drab and, in, and not very powerful man, Besmertnik. And so, to what extent will these two forces, the loss of Shevardnadze and the domestic shift in the balance of power inside the Soviet Union, begin to pull Moscow away? We're now in that transition phase that will really test that. My, my sixth rule, is that there will be no peace in the Persian Gulf until there is peace between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland? <laughs> You're laughing. <laughs> this is my fundamental thesis. They're laughing at me, Mom. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Now you would say, what in the world does. Peace between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland have to do with peace in the Middle East, to which I would tell you about as much as peace between Arabs and Israelis will have to do with peace in the Persian Gulf. There was an earthquake in a place called Kuwait, and it overturned the entire political landscape. But in the Arab-Israeli theater down the street, they just got a few aftershocks, my friends, rattled a few teacups, maybe turned over a chair or two. But it has not fundamentally reshaped anything. And so those who have so blithely assumed, including the president, that a resolution of one conflict will automatically lead to the resolution of another, I think, are engaging in a very, very false assumption. Let's look at these two different theaters and ask what will it take to stabilize both the Persian Gulf theater and the Arab-Israeli theater. In the Persian Gulf, you're not going to have a new order, because it wasn't an old order. What there was was a rickety, unstable, fragile equilibrium between states that occasionally got out of whack. There is a fundamental rule of geopolitics in the Persian Gulf, and that's that there are two powers in the Persian Gulf and two powers only. One is called Iraq, and the other is called Iran. Saudi Arabia, nice country, no people. And you cannot be a power without people. You cannot project power outside your borders, no matter how much money you have, without people. So when one of these countries, Iraq, was very strong, as in the 1980s, everyone else in the Gulf quivers. And when Iran under the Shah was very strong in the 1970s, everyone else in the Gulf quivers. And when for eight years the two of them, Iran and Iraq, were at war with each other, everybody's relaxed. (laughs) They should only fight forever was the motto in the Persian Gulf. Now, of course, the Persian Gulf crisis was a result of that disequilibrium. Iraq emerged from the Iran-Iraq War much stronger than Iran. It saw itself as an unrivaled, unchallenged regional power with an army of 63 divisions. I think the Saudis have two or three, just to give you an order of magnitude. And the temptation to move into Kuwait was too much. So the first way you're going to get a reasonable equilibrium again in the Persian Gulf is when a third force comes in and counterbalances these two. And guess who that's going to be? It's going to be the United States, not with troops on the ground so much, but with air power, naval power, and large amounts of ordinance prepositioned in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, for a quick return of American forces. There's also going to be a major upgrading of the Saudi army, the Kuwaiti army, and the others. And there's also going to be enormous weapons transfers, what is called the New World Orders, that will move from the West <laughs> to the Persian Gulf. That, together, is going to make the counterbalance to these two. Now, a lot of people thought Egypt and Syria were going to help the Gulf states also make that counterbalance to Iran and Iraq, but two weeks ago, as you may have read, Egypt and Syria were thrown out because the Gulf states didn't believe that they were worth the money their troops were demanding, they didn't want the political domination that came with those troops, and they preferred to have the Americans, since they know we'll come back, for our own interests, anyways. And they get more bang for their buck. So I would argue to you, a year from now, we are gonna see a configuration in the Middle East, and don't, don't rule it out at all, where you're going to see several Arab states aligned with Iraq, even, before this jigsaw puzzle is put back together again. We're just now in the transition phase. Now the other element of stability in the Persian Gulf, of course, will be stability inside of Iraq. And it's clear the internal equilibrium inside Iraq is going to be restored, at least in the short run, with Saddam Hussein still in power. Now this is for two basic reasons. One is that Saddam has simply perfected the means of control in ways that his predecessors never dreamed of. He learned a long time ago, don't waste time killing people you hate, like communists or Jews or radicals. Kill people who can threaten you, like your generals and your brother and your cousin. This is a man who has perfected the means of control. No one, including his cabinet ministers, knows where to find him. No one gets into his presence without being strip searched, and he is very, very difficult, Uh, uh, he's going to be a very, very difficult man to simply topple with a coup d'etat. He is not easy to find, period. So that's the first reason. Now the second reason is that, go back to my tribal analogy, Iraq is just an agglomeration of tribes, Kurds, Sunni Muslims, Shiites in the south when the Shiites rebelled in the south and the Kurds rebelled in the north, the Sunni Muslims in the middle, who are represented by Saddam Hussein, naturally rallied around their tribal leader. Okay, he's a bad guy, but he's our bad guy. And this is a choice not between one bad guy and one good guy, it's a choice between disintegration or order. It's a choice between Iraq, as we may have known it, and Lebanon. And as the Muslim proverb says, better a hundred years of tyranny than one day of anarchy. And that's something Saddam has very much had going for him in the wake of this war. Now, what about peace on the Arab Israeli front? First, a joke. There's a joke uh, about, there's this old man this old Jewish man named Goldberg, who wanted to win the lottery. And every Sabbath, the lottery would come. Goldberg would go to synagogue. They'd pick the number and Goldberg wouldn't win. He'd say, God, I've been such a pious Jew all my life. What do I have to do to win the lottery? What would be so bad if I won the lottery? Every Sabbath, he'd go to synagogue, he'd pray to God, what would be so bad if I won the lottery? And the lottery would come and Goldberg wouldn't win. This would go on week after week and month after month until finally one Sabbath he went to synagogue and said, God, I have been such a pious Jew. What do I have to do? And the heavens parted and the voice of God came down and said, Goldberg, give me a chance, buy a ticket. Now, I always think of that joke um, in the wake of this war, when everyone comes and says, everybody wants peace. But I say, is everyone just shrying to God, God, please deliver me? Or has anyone really bought a ticket? Has anyone really sidled up to the window and said, I'm ready to make fundamental compromises that I never before considered? Or is everyone just saying, Deliver me, like this man in the Damascus Bazaar. We were there a couple weeks ago with Baker. He told this story on the radio this morning. We're walking through the great covered bazaar of Damascus, shopkeepers lining both sides of the road, and one shopkeeper is yelling at Baker, Mr. Baker, something for nothing, something for nothing. Come on into my store. And that's all I can think of when I think of the Arab-Israeli peace process today is a bunch of leaders yelling at him, something for nothing, Mr. Baker. I want something for nothing. And that's basically what everybody wants. We're all, we're all for peace. We all want peace, but everyone wants it for free. Shamir wants it without any domestic political crisis. Assad wants it without having to really deal with the Israelis. The Palestinians want it, but not without having to give up half of Palestine. So everybody wants something for nothing. Which is why I have been arguing and would argue that Baker's approach right now, of trying to get a peace conference together, just get the parties around the table, and they will have a mind-altering experience. That's the the thesis of this. (laughs) Like it's an est session or something. The problem with these people is not that they don't understand each other, it's that they do. That's why they've been fighting all these years. They each understand that there's one dunam and two tribes, and one tribe's going to triumph and the other's going to weep, and that's been the history of this land for 3,000 years. And it's not going to change because little Tommy Friedman from Minneapolis comes out and asks people to make nice. That's the reality. So what options do you have? Now what I would argue is that you have had peace in the Middle East, progress toward peace in the Middle East, under two conditions and two conditions only. What I call extreme pain or extreme pleasure. Henry Kissinger, it's not that he was such a genius and Baker is such a flop when in 73 he put together the first disengagement agreements between Syria and Egypt. What he had going for him was a war. The Egyptian and Syrian and Israeli populations were fully mobilized in the field. Their economies were in shambles. People had no choice but to make fundamental compromises they had never before considered. Because for them, the status quo was more dangerous and more unbearable then change. In 1977, Jimmy Carter, God bless him, he did a great job, but he wasn't a genius. He had Anwar Sadat going for him. Anwar Sadat who went to Jerusalem and offered what I call extreme pleasure for the Israelis. He was like a man who got up in a tree, walked out on a limb, took out a saw, and sawed it off. And the Israelis were like the guy on the ground saying, look, look, that guy, he just got up in a tree. He, He's taken out a saw. He's sawing it off. We got to run and go catch him. In other words, Sadat, by the very audacity of what he did, demanded and elicited an equally far-reaching response from the Israelis. What is new today is that there is no war that is forcing the parties to say the status quo is more unbearable than any alternative. And there is no Sadat and no Begin. There's just Assad and Hussein and Shamir and a bunch of other survivors. So Baker to me is like a man trying to build a house with bricks and no cement. Now his approach is to go for a conference. I would argue that two other alternatives under the present conditions would be more fruitful. I think you should either go for extreme clarity or extreme vision. What do I mean by that? I think one approach would be for the secretary to call in Shamir and Arafat and say to Shamir, look Yitzhak, we ain't dealing with Mother Teresa. We're dealing with the PLO. Now you want us to help you do a deal with the people who might be able to deliver a deal from the other side, you give me a call, 202-647-4000, ask for Jim Baker. But otherwise, you know what, stay out of my life, because you know what I'm not going to give you? I'm not going to give you a phony peace process where you can stand up in front of your people and say, don't worry, something's happening, Baker's coming, he's going, there's a new idea, don't worry, okay? We're not going to play that game anymore. I'm going to leave you with one choice. You're going to have to stand up in front of the Knesset and say, my friends, i got only one thing to offer you, 60 days reserve duty every year on the West Bank. I'm going to force you, Shamir, to pay the political price. Retail for your position, okay? No wholesale here. And at the same time, you gotta call in Arafat and say, look my friend, last time I checked my calendar, it was 1991, not 1981, and sure as heck not 1947. So you wanna do a deal over what there is left to do a deal over? You give me a call, 202 647 4,000. Otherwise, stay out of my life. i got better things to do. New worlds are borning in Eastern Europe, and I'm not going to play this game with you. Now, I would argue that's not going to produce peace overnight, but what it could do is catalyze the domestic forces in these societies to create the kind of pressure and pain on the leadership to force new thinking, and we are talking about pain. I'm sorry to say, there's, there's not any, there's not gonna be any charity here. No one is gonna do the right thing for the right reasons. You have to think about how to get people to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. Now the other option is to go to completely the other extreme. Now you notice Baker talks to everyone about this conference, about procedural issues, and everyone pretends we're just talking about procedure. And Shamir will say, I, 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 just, I, I won't talk to any Palestinian with an East Jerusalem identity card. It's just a procedural question. But why won't he talk to any Palestinian with an East Jerusalem identity card? Because he thinks that will imply that Jerusalem is negotiable and on the table. So we aren't really talking about procedure then. We're talking about substance. We're talking about Jerusalem. To which I say, then let's talk about Jerusalem. Let's at least tell the Israeli people and the Palestinians what we're talking about. Assad says, I'll come to this conference, um, provided the UN uh, convenes it and is there. Well, it's just a procedural issue. But what it's really about is diluting the direct nature of any peace talks, so he doesn't quite, doesn't quite have to touch Shamir, Doesn't quite have to look him in the eye. There'll always be someone in between. So this isn't a procedural question. These are all about substance. And what happens is, when these negotiations get into procedure, the peoples, the Syrian people, the Palestinian people, the Israeli people, are totally left out. Baker's been back and forth to Jerusalem four times now. He's never once given an interview with a single Israeli newspaper. There are 12 Israelis, I would argue, who know what he's even selling. How do you expect to mobilize domestic constituencies to support and pressure the leadership if people don't even know what you're doing? So I would argue one extreme is give everyone your phone number, and the other extreme is to lay down a detailed vision of what peace looks like to the US government, where the border is, what the relations are going to be, where the demilitarized zone is, what the 10-year transition process to that map. Uh, I would say that um, Wenda was saying to me as we were upstairs, whoever thought, you know, when we scheduled you nine months ago that the Middle East would be in the headlines you know, this way. And I have to tell you, Wenda, to which I thought at the time, don't worry Nine months from now, it'll be the same. And that's the thing about this story that we have to keep in mind, that it's never tied up in a neat little bow. That's something we can call the New Order. It's just not in the nature of the place. It always reminds me of this story when I think of the Middle East, of this guy, he's riding on a train, he's in a sleeper car, and he puts his head down on the pillow, and he hears from the car next to him, "Boy." Am I toisty? So the guy's trying to sleep. Every 15 minutes, he hears, oi, am I toisty? Finally, the guy just can't stand it anymore. He gets up, he goes to the bathroom, gets a cup of water, knocks on the guy's door, and says, here. Guy takes a cup of water, drinks it down, says, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Goes back, he lies down. 15 minutes, he hears, oi, was I toisty? Okay. That's the Middle East, I'm afraid. It always comes back at you. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Mr. Friedman. Following this program, the the line will form to the right to buy a ticket. (laughs) Let us pass. Our time is running short, admittedly, and I think we're glad that our guest uh, continued beyond the half hour, because I think he answered many of the questions that we were ready to pose. By the same token, if you have a question, pass it to the aisle. We'll treat as many of them as we can. And we'll see that he gets the rest of them, so you'll have the full flavor of what's on your mind. A reminder to the radio audience that you've been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. Our speaker has been Tom Friedman, who is the chief diplomatic correspondent for The New York Times, author of the now famous From Beirut to Jerusalem, Our co-sponsors today, the General Mills Foundation and the McKnight Foundation. If you'd like to send a question uh, from the, uh, uh, that is, those of you in the radio audience would like to pose a question that will be considered later, the church number is 332-3421. Mr. Friedman, would you return to the podium for a few valuable minutes that, that remain to us? Uh, I was very pleased uh, to see your article in the New York Times Sunday, following immediately upon your return from the Middle East, and I was intrigued, uh, among other things, you're saying toward the end, what really is new in the Middle East is the desire of any everyone for closer relations with Washington. Would you say something more about that?
1: Yeah, that's a good. Uh, it's a good question, Don. Um, what what is really sustaining, I would argue, Baker's four missions uh, back and forth to the Middle East in the last two months. Um, What has generated, I would say, or what is responsible, the little progress that he's shown is not that Arabs and Israelis have suddenly adopted a new attitude towards each other in the wake of the Gulf War, but the fact that the Gulf War has created, and some other factors, a new, I would say, a slightly new dependency on the United States by several of the key actors. Saudi Arabia, for instance. The way that um, uh, the President and the Secretary were able to get the Saudis to agree to have the Gulf Cooperation Council made up of themselves and their five other Gulf allies to send an observer to the peace talks. The first time they'd even send an observer to any direct negotiations with Israel was not that King Fahd had an epiphany one morning and decided, oh, it's time you know, to do this. Uh, he initially resisted. The way they got him to do it was the president saying, uh, uh, look, your highness, there'll be no arms sales from the United States to Saudi Arabia unless you are more forthcoming. Um, the Israeli government needs $10 billion in emergency housing loan guarantees by September in order to house Soviet Jews. Shamir understands that if he rebuffs Baker, or if he is the one who is made to appear to be the obstacle, those housing loan guarantees will be in jeopardy. King Hussein, the Palestinians, both see this peace process as a way of getting out of their isolation created by their support for Iraq during the Gulf War. Um, The Syrians, too, have lost their superpower patron, the Soviet Union. They also don't want to be cut loose and want a new relationship with the United States. So I would argue that um, we're in a situation where Baker wants to be an obstetrician for peace, um, but the couples don't really want to get pregnant with each other, they all want to get pregnant with us. And um, uh, for now, that's sustaining it. Now, what I would say, is that um, Henry Kissinger also understood that in 1973, that the 73 war didn't suddenly give everyone therapy and that they were all suddenly ready to deal with each other, that it was because they wanted a new relationship with us. And he parlayed that into a disengagement agreement. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. one can't underestimate it. It gets back to wanting or being able to get people to do the right thing for the
0: wrong reasons. Uh, In your article, you also said that Kuwait has returned to abnormal. That ties in with this question What are the hopes for democracy in Kuwait? Democracy in Kuwait. Well,
1: um, I think, I mean, on one hand, we have to give the Kuwaitis their due, um, and that is of all the Arab Gulf states, Kuwait always had the, the freest press, um, uh, I would say, the freest political environment, and it was the only one with a truly functioning political opposition and the parliament until it was suspended by the emir in 1986. So I think on the one hand, we have to give them their due. Um, At the same time, uh, we have to keep in mind that we wanted a new order out of this war, but all of the parties really wanted the old order. They were fighting for a return of the status quo, and the status quo was with the al-Sabah family in charge, old social contract, it was with women not voting in Kuwait, and women not driving in Saudi Arabia. And it was a status quo without millions of reporters crawling around their country uh, reporting on every trial. So uh, there's going to be a tension here between our values and theirs because deep down they never shared our values, or certainly not in full. I don't see the prospects in the short run very high, but in the long run, I think there is an interesting dynamic going on in Kuwait, and that is uh, as a result of the fact that the ruling family left during the war. Now, the fact is, had they not have left and they had been captured, they would have been killed. So I don't entirely blame them for leaving. Uh, In fact, by virtue of the fact that they left, they kept the kind of legitimate symbols of Kuwait alive, and that actually was very important. But many Kuwaitis did stay, and they fought, and they suffered, and they engaged in uh, underground warfare. And for the first time, they really had to fight for their country. And so I would argue that a new social contract is in the making in Kuwait right now, with a lot of Kuwaitis saying, I'm sorry, we're just not going back to the old regime where you run the place and I make money. Um, I want to have a new say in things. So I think in the long run, you know, democracy has had many strange midwives. And um, the strangest of all may be Saddam Hussein before this is over.
0: Mm-hmm. Another question from the audience. Several hundred thousand Iraqis dead, tens of thousands of Kurds, Saddam still there. Was it worth it? Were there any alternatives?
1: It's a good question, and it's certainly one that I've thought about for a long time, but I go back to, um, I think it was my second rule, there were alternatives. Uh, there were millions of alternatives, but Saddam never chose them, um, and I'm not a, a warmonger. I mean, I've wrote many critical pieces about this war, too, but I, I have to tell you, as a faithful reporter, um, I, I never saw a single junction in this war where the Iraqis indicated a willingness either to unilaterally withdraw, to partially withdraw, to withdraw under conditions. Even at the eleventh hour, even at midnight plus one, they were still jerking around the United Nations and not making clear what they wanted. So um, I would uh, have to regrettably argue that um, uh, there was no
0: alternative in the end. Uh, Two questions bear on uh, the wisdom, or lack of it, in trying to put pressure on Israel by reducing or eliminating our financial support.
1: Um, uh, I think that um, uh, my own feeling about that, and I think it's uh, shared by the President and the Secretary for that matter, is that change, if it's going to come, and if it's going to be sustainable, cannot be imposed from the outside. If people don't feel that their fundamental security is going to be satisfied, or more importantly, if they feel their fundamental security is at risk, you can take away all their aid. And that's not going to do it. Change has to come internally. And that's why, if you listen closely to the analyses I laid out, all of them are designed to promote internal change. And I don't see Uh, cutting off aid, you could cut it off tomorrow, but if the Israelis felt there was no sincere Arab or Palestinian partner for a peace arrangement, then it's not gonna happen. Now, if there were a different environment in the Middle East, if if Hafez Assad was Anwar Sadat and King Hussein was Anwar Sadat and King Fahad was Anwar Sadat, (laughs) and Isaac Shamir still didn't respond, then you might consider these other alternatives, but I would argue we're not there
0: yet. Toward the end of your book, uh, you strike a note of optimism. You also quote someone from the Middle East who said, "I'm an optimist. Of course, I'm certain that today will be better than tomorrow." Uh, <laughs> 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 well, are, you, are you? Let's close on the major issue: Are you uh, and can you be? Can we be an optimist about what lies ahead?
1: I'm a schizophrenic.
0: And um, uh,
1: and uh, that's really the truth. And really, um, it took me a long time uh, to understand that. You know, it's very funny. I'll, I'll tell you the story. I wrote this book in 13 months. I had a year off. And uh, uh, it came very suddenly, my book leave. And so I literally, I was working one day as a Jerusalem correspondent, and the next day they said, because they wanted me to take this job and start when Bush was starting. So, on January 20th, 1988, they said, you've got a year off, start now, the clock is running, do not pass go, do not collect $200, you are now on leave, okay, go write a book. So I went home, I took out my computer, I put a disc in, and I wrote the first line of the book, I once saw a man get kidnapped in Beirut, it only took a few seconds, and I just started writing. And after about 10 months, I finally, I knew there were themes I wanted to explore, Um, And you can see them in the book. But after 10 months, I got all, I wrote sort of 15 discrete essays and I stacked them up one day and I said, you know, there's a book here. (laughs) And um, more importantly, there's a theme. I really, you know, it was really a classic case of discovering something about yourself. And I discovered that my experience uh, in the Middle East is very much I mean, my, my political feelings are very autobiograph- autobiographical. I am very much the Minnesota boy who went to Beirut. And on the one hand, coming out of Minnesota and this community, and I think that coming out of a community where things basically work gives you a certain optimistic attitude about life and about politics. And so there's sort of half of me that's in that mode. And the other half of me is the reporter who went to Beirut. and and saw that um, uh, they do things there that they don't do on Northwest Airlines. <laughs> and, um, uh, and I can't deny that part of me as well. Mm-hmm. And so you can see running through my book um, that constant tension between my optimism and my pessimism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, and a lot of critics criticize me for it, you know, and to which I say, hey, You know, they said I wasn't consistent, to which I say, hey, reality isn't consistent. Mm -hmm. And I'm just a reporter. Mm -hmm.
0: Mr. Friedman, one of the reviewers of your book, uh, speaking of your book, said that you fill the yawning gap between verbiage and understanding with grace, precision, and insight. Thank you for doing that for us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.